And this morning we are on our last installment of seven. We have been looking at the seven vices and the seven virtues, so today is the last installment on the last vice. And I want you to know that the text this morning, or not the text, the topic is lust. Now, I know that all of you woke up this morning, rubbed your hands together, and said, I can't wait for church. We're going to talk about lust. <laughs> Maybe not. But I want you to know, I want you sort of, this is um, a warning. You, you, you may want to put your seatbelts on a little bit early today. This text in Judges chapter 19, verses 1 to 30, is probably the second most difficult text in the Bible to read and to hear. Now, some of you are thinking, well, what's the first most difficult text? We'll leave that for another time. Now, I stole the title from a lady by the name of Phyllis Tickle, and Phyllis Tickle called Judges chapter 19, verses 1 to 30, a text of terror. And you'll see exactly what that means when we read it together. I'm going to read the blue, you're going to read the black. Now, I also want to warn you, we're going to read all 30 verses, the entire chapter. So here we go. In those days, when there was no king in Israel, which is a theme in Judges, a certain Levite was sojourning in the remote parts of a hill country of Ephraim, who took to himself a concubine from Bethlehem and Judah, and his concubine was unfaithful to him, and she went away from him to her father's house at Bethlehem and Judah, and, there was, and was there some four months. Then her husband arose and went after her to speak kindly to her and bring her back. He had with him his servant and a couple of donkeys, and she brought him into her father's house. And when the girl's father saw him, he came with joy to meet him, and his father-in-law, the girl's father, made him stay, and he remained with him three days. So they ate and drank and spent the night there. And on the fourth day they arose early in the morning, and he prepared to go, but the girl's father said to his son-in-law, Strengthen your heart with a morsel of bread, and after that you may go. So the two of them sat and ate and drank together. And the girl's father said to the man, Be pleased to spend the night, and let your heart be merry. And when the man rose up to go, his father-in-law pressed him till he spent the night there again. And on the fifth day he arose early in the morning to depart. And the girl's father said, Strengthen your heart and wait until the day declines. So they ate, both of them. And when the man and his concubine and his servant rose up to depart, his father-in-law, the girl's father, said to him, Behold, now the day has waned toward evening. Please spend the night. Behold, the day draws to its close. Lodge here and let your heart be merry. And tomorrow you shall arise early in the morning for your journey and go home. But the man would not spend the night. He rose up and departed and arrived opposite Jebus, that is, in, that is Jerusalem. And he had with him a couple of saddle donkeys and his concubine with him. And when they were near Jebus, the day was nearly over. And the servant said to his master, come now, let us turn aside to this city of the Jebusites and spend the night in it. And his master said to him, We will not turn aside into the city of foreigners who do not belong to the people of Israel, but we will pass on to Gibeah. And he said to his young man, 
Come and let us draw near to one of these places and spend the night at Gibeah or at Ramah. And so they passed on and went their way. And the sun went down on them near Gibeah, which belongs to Benjamin. And they turned aside there to go in and spend the night at Gibeah. And he went in and sat down in the open square of the city, for no one took them into his house to spend the night. And behold, an old man was coming from his work in the field at evening. The man was from the hill country of Ephraim and was sojourning in Gibeah. The men of the place were Benjaminites. And he lifted up his eyes and saw the traveler in the open square of the city. And the old man said, where are you going and where do you come from? I'm losing you. We're halfway there. And he said to them, we are passing from Bethlehem in Judah to remote parts of the hill country of Ephraim. By the way, Ephraim is just another name for Israel. For which I, from which I come. I went to Bethlehem and Jude, Judah, and I am, now, I am going to the house of the Lord, but uh, no one has taken me into his house. We have straw and feed for our donkeys with bread and wine for me and your female servant and the young man with your servants. There is no lack of anything. As they were making their hearts merry, behold, the men of the city, worthless fellows, surrounded the house, beating on the door, and they said to the old man, the master of the house, bring out the man who came into your house, that we may know him. I'm not saying anything, because it's my fault. And the man, the master of the house, went out to them and said to them, No, my brothers, do not act so wickedly since this man is coming to my house. Do not do this vile thing. Behold, here are my virgin daughter and his concubine. Let me bring them out to you now. Violate them and do with them what seems good to you. But against this man, do not do this outrageous thing. You get to read blue. But, but the men would not listen to him. So the man seized his concubine and made her go out to them. And they knew her and abused her all night until the morning. And as the dawn began to break, they let her go. And as morning appeared, the woman came and fell down at the door of the man's house where her master was until it was light. You don't like reading in blue, right? And her master rose up in the morning. And when he opened the doors of the house and went out to go on his way, behold, there was his concubine lying at the door of the house with her hands on the threshold. He said to her, Get up, let us be going. But there was no answer. Then he put her on the donkey, and the man rose up and went away to his home. And when he entered his home, and taking hold of his concubine, he divided her limb by limb, into twelve pieces, and sent her throughout all the territory of Israel. And all who saw it said, such a thing has never happened or been seen from the day that the people of Israel come, out of, come up out of the land of Egypt. Consider it, take counsel, and speak. Father, we pause to thank you for your faithfulness to us in Jesus Christ and the work and ministry of the Holy Spirit. And Father, we read your word and we look at it and we take it with the good and the bad, with the warts and everything. And so Lord, we pray today that you would give us grace to speak, to hear, to understand, to have hearts that are open, 
that we may live out your truth in a tangible, meaningful way. And we do this for Christ's sake, and in his name we ask these mercies. And everyone said, Amen. You may be seated. Well, it only took us eight minutes to read the text, but didn't I tell you? It is a horrific text. Right? How many of you have read that text before? How many of you, for the first time, this is the first time you've ever knew that that story was in the Bible? Raise your hand. And I tell you, honestly, it is a very difficult text to hear and to read. So let's unpack it a bit, and let's first of all talk about the characters. Now, when I use the word characters, by referring to them as characters, what I'm saying to you is that almost everyone in the story, except for possibly the concubine, they are terrible people. So let's look at them. First of all, there is a certain Levite from Ephraim, from Israel. We'll talk more about him in just a few moments. And then there is, the second character is his concubine. Now, I want to make a couple of observations here to just identify that, first of all, that this woman, this concubine, is referred to as his, his A reminder that in biblical ancient history that the status of women was atrocious and that women were considered um, items to be owned and this concubine was owned by this Levite. Now the fact that she is referred to as a concubine is a little difficult because it means that she was a secondary wife. Now, it could mean common law uh, spouse, but I, I, I really don't know. But if you'll notice in the text further on that uh, the, her father is referred to as the Levite's father-in-law, and, uh, so, and, and the Levite is referred to as her husband. So we really don't know the status of a concubine if it was, a, like I said, a secondary wife or a woman of lower economic status, which is bizarre to all of us, I concur. The second thing that we notice is that she is described as being unfaithful to him. Now, there's only two things that that can mean. Number one is that she actually had an affair with another man, and she goes home to her father's home, but that's not likely what happened. Um, Eugene Peterson and other scholars say that it looks like it means, the word, the Hebrew word means that they quarreled together. They had a fight, and they had a fight, and she went home. And either way, she went home, and she's there for four months, and he finally goes to her her home and sweet-talks her into coming back with him. And it's at the home that we meet our third character, which is her father. Now, what's interesting is that her father is very happy to see his son-in-law. And, of course, the problem develops now, and now we begin to develop the problem of what's going to happen. They're there for three days. He tries to leave. He tries to leave again in the third attempt. The father-in-law tries to keep them longer and prolong their visit for whatever reason. The Bible doesn't tell us, and I really don't know, and I'm not going to speculate. And, but anyway, they finally decide that they're going to leave, but they leave in, the, in some time in the afternoon. Now, we don't know when exactly they left, but they know, we know that it is six miles travel, walking or taking a donkey to Jerusalem. And Jerusalem in those days was a foreign city. It was a Jebusite city, not in Israel. And they decide that they're not going to stay there. And then they decide that they're going to go to Gibeah, which is in Israel, which is in the tribe of Benjamin, which is another four miles. 
So a 10-mile journey, so they must have left sometime in the early afternoon, but they arrive when it's dark. And they arrive and they sit down in the town square, and for, for those of you who don't know, in those days in Israel, if a person was sitting in the town square, somebody in Israel was to, take that, was to go and invite that person or persons into their home and give them hospitality, feed them, and give them a place to stay. But that wasn't happening until we meet our fourth character, which is an old man who is coming in from his field, and he too is from the same area that this Levite is from. He sees them in the town square, and so he invites them to come and stay with him. And this is when the horror begins. The fifth group or the fifth characters that we're introduced to are the men of the city. They are they are referred to as worthless fellows. Now, we again do not know when it says the men of the city, are we talking about every male in the city of Gibeah? No. Are we talking about five men? Are we talking about 10 men? Are we talking about 30 men? I have no idea. Just men, plural. We don't know how many. Now, for those of you who know, have read the Bible, and you know Bible, you have Bible knowledge, you know that there's another story in the Bible that is very similar to this story. And the story of Judges chapter 19 mirrors another story in Genesis chapter 19. Now for those of you who don't know the story, I'm going to give you the Coles notes. A man by the name of Lot is living in the city of Sodom, and two angels come to visit Lot to tell him that he needs to leave Sodom. And Lot invites these two angels. He doesn't know they're angels. They just look like men. And Lot invites these two men, gives them hospitality into his home. And sometime during the evening or the early morning, the men of the city do the same thing. They surround his house and they are going to attack and they want to have sex with the two men that have come to visit Lot. And Lot does similar to what the old man does in Judges chapter 19. He says, listen, I've got two virgin daughters. I'll give them to you. You do whatever you want with them, but don't touch these men. Well, that never happens because the angels grab Lot, pull him back inside the house before he can ever make the transaction, and the, the angels strike the attackers in Genesis 19 with blindness. And that's the end of the story. Now, we'll come back to that in a bit. But back to our text in Judges chapter 19. Some observations that we need to make before we go any further. The first thing is this, is that homosexuality was condemned in ancient Israel. It was one of the things that, one of the ways in which the people of Israel were not supposed to be like the nations around them. Homosexuality and any act of it was indeed a no-no. That's the way it was. Now the second thing we need to observe here is that Gibeah is not like Sodom and Gomorrah. It is not in a foreign nation. Gibeah is a city in Israel. And that's important to our story. And the third thing, probably the thing that makes some of us most uncomfortable, is the inference of the act of homosexuality. 
Now, if you read the text properly, you will discover, first of all, that this story is not about homosexuality at all. Matter of fact, there is no homosexual act that is performed in the text. But, but, this is a story of sexual perversion and violence. This is a story of the abuse of a woman, a human being. And thirdly, this is a story about the mutilation of her body. Now, there's no getting away from it. No getting away from it. It is shocking. It is horrific. It is repulsive. And it is gruesome. And in fact, it is one of the most shocking episodes in the history of the people of Israel. Judges 19 is the story of outrage at Gibeah. Outrage. Now, that brings us then to the root problem. And also brings us to the seventh deadly sin, which is lust. And what we have here in Judges 19 is this. This is what humanity... And human sexuality looks like at its very worst. This is what sexual desire and sexual drive looks like gone crazy, out of control. And this night of horror becomes the standard of sin for the people of Israel. And the impact of it is powerful on the nation. This act, this episode, this event, is the benchmark of wickedness for the nation of Israel. You know how we use Adolf Hitler and Nazi and Nazism as the definitive marker, the standard for human evil? This was the low watermark for Israel. Matter of fact, the prophet Hosea in 9.9 and 10.9 is going to refer back to this incident to remind the people of their iniquity or their ancestors' iniquity in Judges chapter 19. Now, ironically, what characterizes the time of the Judges is not so much the deliverers and the judges that God actually raised up for the people of Israel. But the issue becomes what people do when they see what is right in their own eyes. When they see what it is that they see fit to do. That's the point. Now, here's the problem with our very awkward subject, lust. Here's the problem. Lust, like all other evils, is destructive and it is deceitful. Now, let me give you three things. First of all is this, that first of all, lust distorts. Lust takes something that is good something that is holy, something that is beautiful, and something that is to be enjoyed, 
And it twists it and it distorts it into something ugly and selfish. Sex was designed by God to be good, to be beautiful, and it was designed for procreation and it was designed for recreation. And we know, of course, that sex is good. The Bible tells us that and God tells us that. And, of course, we know that sex is essential and necessary for the advancement of human life. And sex is also intended to be the most, one of the most pleasurable acts known to humankind. Somebody wrote this. One of the most revolting things about lust is that it twists and distorts something that was intended to be one of the greatest gifts and pleasures known to man and drags it down to the level of a beast. Lust takes both and distorts them. At the heart of lust is the idolizing of sexuality. An unethical and an unrestrained expression of the sex drive. And our text tells us that lust has the potential to spawn in the human heart's things that we never thought that we would be, it would be possible for us to participate in. Let me say it again. Lust has the potential to spawn in our hearts and in our lives and in our actions things that we were thought we were incapable of being involved with. There's a cute story about two monks who had taken the vow of chastity, chastity, and uh, they had taken this vow never to look at a woman or touch a woman, all that kind of stuff, and so they came to a river. And lo and behold, there's this beautiful woman. And she wants to get across the river, but the river's flooding. So the first monk takes the woman up on, her back, on his back, and he walks across the river, and when he gets down back on the other side, he puts her down, and the two monks go on, and she goes on her way. And the second monk, all self-righteous, says, hey, I thought we took a vow of chastity. What are you doing carrying this beautiful woman across this river on your back? And the second monk says, here's the deal. Brother, I put her down on the other side of the bank. But you're still carrying her in your mind. Now, let me tell you how this works in real life. Let me tell you a story from two or three weeks ago. Out of my life. You okay with that? Talk about putting your seatbelt on. Now you're really uncomfortable, aren't you? You're dying inside saying, what in the world is he going to say? You have no idea, do you? Just feel the pain of that. Just feel the agony. Feel the torment. No, here's the deal. So the other day, uh, a couple of Wednesdays ago, three or four Wednesdays ago, came to the office. And um, I went in on my computer. And as I always do, you know, you know what it's like in the morning, right? You're just kind of doing stuff because you always do them. And I clicked on my email, and lo and behold, up pops this picture of this woman naked from the waist up. Well, right away, and I'm going to be honest with you, right away, I'm, I'm, I'm just like, I, I'm, first of all, I'm shocked. And the second thing is I'm shaking. Because I know something that maybe you don't know, but I know is this. I know stories. 
I told our staff about a story about a friend, of, not a friend of mine, that's not true, um, a friend to a friend, who became a, a pastor who became addicted to pornography. You know how it happened? As innocent as this. He walked across the church parking lot, and he was in the church parking lot, and he saw um, a paper, a magazine, fluttering in the wind. And it was by the, uh, by the uh, garbage bin, and he walked across, picked it up, to throw it in the bin and realized it was a pornographic magazine. And he said that that was the beginning of an addiction that almost destroyed him. So I know these stories. I've heard other stories, as you have probably as well. So all of a sudden now I'm shaking. So the first thing I do is I go into Pastor Scott, and because he, he's our IT guy, and I said, Scott, I got this, I got this n- nude woman that came up on my email. Like, we need to do something about this. Now, I'm going to confess to you, I didn't just tell him because he's the IT guy. I needed to tell him because I needed to be accountable. So long story short, he works it out, and I go to the other staff, and I tell all the other staff, I tell Pastor Kevin, Pastor Derek, and, uh, and I tell the girls, and, and I'm discovering that we get these emails on a regular basis. So we called our people who provide our uh, internet, and so we've upped the filters. And now I, if, you don't get, if I don't get your email, you've been filtered. <laughs> Just so you know. You've been filtered. And uh, so if you don't hear from me in 24 hours, or you don't hear from a staff member in 24 hours, call us. We didn't get your email. Now, so anyway, um, that was fine. The next morning, Thursday, we met, we had a day of prayer and vision planning for the staff. And so we came and, and we were sitting, matter of fact, uh, I was sitting about where you're sitting, and we were sitting here and we were praying and talking, and I said to them, and this is what I said to the staff, I said, can I tell you something? I said, I know we dealt with the email yesterday, but I got to tell you, it is Thursday morning. And I have not stopped thinking about it. I can't get rid of it. And the point that I'm trying to make is simply this. The moment I confess... Well, I also, by the way, went home and told Ruth the same story and about, on the Wednesday night about what had happened in the email. But here's the point. Lust is tenacious. It will not let us go. And that's why, ladies and gentlemen, in our over-sexualized world, where it is so easily accessible, and it comes to us even when we don't want it, you and I need to be accountable. And that's why I went to Scott and Pastor Derek and Pastor Kevin and the Jessicas and Pastor Sherry. That's why I told them that I was still, it was still hanging on. I could still see the image on Thursday morning. Because lust will not let us go. And ladies and gentlemen, if you don't get anything else, get this this morning. Please do not be deceived to think that I'm exempt that I am more powerful, that I am able to overcome this temptation. You are not. You are just as vulnerable as I am, and I am just as vulnerable as you are. 
Lust by nature wants to own us. It wants to control us. And ultimately, it wants to devour us. Why do you think it's called one of the seven deadly sins? The third thing is that the third trait of lust is that it's absolutely dehumanizing. Lust objectifies human beings. It, in it, people are removed of the humanity and they are made objects for personal pleasure. So the lust of a man objectifies a woman. The lust of a woman objectifies a man. It's the dehumanizing of the human person. And sad to say, females are much more the victim of this than are males. And Judges 19, the sexual abusing of the concubine, illustrates this absolutely. She becomes an object of use and abuse rather than a human being who is made and formed and bears the image of God. Lust degrades human life. We exist in our bodies. But we cannot be reduced to just our bodies. And that's what lust does. Lust reduces us to our bodies. Lust reduces people to what I can get from them, what we can get from them. So is it any wonder that this concubine left her husband for the way that he treats her and ultimately that she is sacrificed for his salvation? Verse 22 says, And as they were making merry in their hearts, the men of the city of Gibeon, worthless fellows, surrounded the house, beating on the door, demanding that the old man give the Levite from Ephraim over to them so that they could have their way with him. Now the old man, in Judges 19, is acting like Lot in Genesis 19. And he offers up and I find this in the biblical text mortifying. I'm being really honest with you. I find it offensive. He offers up his virgin daughter and the man's concubine. So, And listen to what the text says. Violate them and do with them what seems good to you. But against this man, do not do this outrageous thing. Now, the first question that comes to my mind is this. How is violating these two women any less vile than violating the Levite? And then this text in verse 25. The Levite, the man, sorry, sorry, let's, let me back up. The men of the city would not listen to him, and the man grabbed the concubine and made her go out to them, and they knew her. And they abused her all night until the morning. And as the dawn began to break, they let her go. Are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? And what follows? 
makes me nauseous. It does. I'm being honest. Listen to what it says. And her master, the Levite now, rose up early in the morning, and when he opened the door of his house and went out to go on his way, behold, there was the concubine lying at the door of the house with her hands on the threshold. And he said to her, now listen to this. And he says to her, get up. Get up. Let us be going. And then the text says, and there was no answer. Silence. Did you get it? If lust does anything, it is obscene in the way it devours human dignity. This Levite seems to have forgotten the hours of torture that this woman has undergone. And the text says, and when this woman lying in front of the door, see, lust damages its victim and then it discards them. This is kind of like Amnon and Tamar all over again. Amnon wanted her, he took her, and then he hated her. So lust is vulgar in the way that it disfigures the image of God in a person. And I want you to hear this now. Men and women, this alone is enough for me and you to get a grip on our lust and to get help if we need it. That any time I look at another woman or even my own wife in a lustful way, it destroys humanity in them. And then it says, get up. Let's go. Let's be on our way. Now, what's interesting here is we don't know if this woman is dead or alive at the moment. There's silence. She doesn't say anything. There's no answer. But we don't know if she is dead or alive in the text. And what follows is gruesome. And this will be the end of the gruesomeness. What follows is gruesome that they go home. He divides her into 12 pieces. He mutilates her body into 12 pieces. And then he sends a piece to all 12 tribes of Israel. And of course, you read Judges 20, and there's an uproar. So what should be our response? What's our answer? How do we deal with this? Well, let me bring you back, first of all, to Genesis 19th lot in Sodom. Now, there are some differences that I've already highlighted from Genesis 19 to Judges 19. The first one is this, noted that Gibeah is not in a foreign country. This is in Israel. And the point is that this is not what the people of God are supposed to act like. That's the point. And the other big difference is this. There's no angels. There's no miraculous rescue. The the angel saves Lot's life and then blinds the attackers, but there's no miraculous rescue in Judges chapter 19. There's no saving here. There's no angel interference or intervention. And then the last, last verse of our text, verse 30 says, such a thing has never happened. Or been seen from, that, from the day that the people of Israel came up out of the land of Egypt until this day. And then he says three things. Consider it 
take counsel, and speak. So let me just roll with those for a couple of minutes and then we'll conclude. First of all, think. Think about the person at whom our lust is targeted. Think about how our lust dehumanizes and objectifies other individuals. And think about the pain If our lust goes too far, the pain that it brings to our own lives, the pain that it brings to our spouses, if we're married, and the pain that it brings to our families, and think about honor. And when I say think about honor, I mean this. First of all, have honor yourself. Somebody said integrity is the value that we place on ourselves. So honor yourself. Number two, honor God. Number three, honor your spouse and your family. And number four, honor other people. And here's a text that I have used in my life, that I use with you people, that I've used with every congregation that I've ever been. I have tried to function out of this text. 1 Timothy 5, 1-2. Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. Treat older men as fathers. And then it says, treat younger men as brothers. Treat older women as mothers. And treat younger women as sisters. So the next time you objectify some female who is walking wherever or doing whatever... Think about her as your sister. Now, this text creates a problem for me on a lighter note because I married a woman much older than me. Much older than me. Matter of fact, when my wife was in her 50s, I was still in my 40s. So, this text is a bit of a problem for me, but we'll just kind of leave that just for fun. Take counsel. This is, the, this is what happens when lust is out of control. People get hurt. People get used and abused. People are dehumanized and they are, they are objectified and terrible things happen. And then the last thing it tells us is speak. There's a couple of troubling realities in Genesis 19. Well, sorry, in Judges chapter 19, a couple. I'm being... The first one is that, as I mentioned a moment ago, there is no miraculous rescue, like in Genesis 19. That's hard to manage. No one swoops in to save this woman. Now, it's 500 years later from Genesis 19 to Judges 19. But the second thing that is troublesome is this, is that God is silent. And I'm reading this text this week, and I had to put it aside, and I had to go for a drive. And I'm asking myself this question, God, why are you silent? And all of a sudden it hit me. Do you know why God is silent? God is silent because he expects his people to speak. It's 500 years later now from Genesis to Judges, and the people of God have matured and grown and been formed into the people that he intended them to be or hoped they would be. And God is silent because God expects us to speak at injustices and the things that are wrong 
and the people that are marginalized and the people that are minoritized and the people that are ignored. God expects us to speak. When God is silent, we are to speak. And when we are silent, the victim keeps on being victimized. And this is how the people of God are supposed to respond. Think about it. Decide what to do, and then speak up. That's what God expects of us. And that's what this sermon's about. I want you to close your eyes for a moment. I've got to let you go, but I, I want to, you to close your eyes for a moment. And I want to ask you one question. Close your eyes. And this is not for your neighbor. This is for us. This is for me. This is for you. This is for us as individuals. What does our silence say? What are we saying by not speaking? What does our silence say? Your eyes are closed. Now, I told you this was a tough text. Next week, we'll do happier stuff. But this is a tough text. This is a horrific text. But it needs to be preached and it needs to be talked about because it's in the Word of God for a reason. But the question I leave with you this morning is, what does our silence say about us? And about us particularly as identified and defined by being the people of God. So that's all I wanted to ask you. And now I want you to just absorb the anxiety that you're feeling, because I know there's anxiety in the room. It's normal. This, you can't do this text without that. But it's okay. And let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, again, thank you for the living word, Jesus Christ, and for the work and ministry of the Holy Spirit that works through each and every one of us. And Lord, we thank you for your written word, the Bible, which is at times difficult to hear and difficult to read, because it is not pretty. And the humanity in it is grotesque. But Father, you are teaching us that we are to be a people who are to think, to consider. And then we are supposed to decide what it is that we need to do. And you call us to be, to speak, to be advocates, to not be silent, but to speak. And so we pray in the name of Jesus that you would give us minds to think and you would give us a voice to speak. We love you. We give you praise. In Christ's name, amen.